Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, everyone. Buddy C. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today, we have Sensei Elliston with us. Glad to have you today, sir. Marla and Kate and Tina and Craig, today is uh, just a meeting with Sensei. We're going to get to pick his brain about Zen, see how empty he is. <laughs> you know, Sensei, we've been studying the Tao Te Ching for, uh, gosh, two years now. June was two years that we've been studying. Good We're job. on like our 103rd episode or something. So we've we've gone all through the Tao Te Ching every chapter then now we're on um merton's thomas merton's book on chauncey who is uh who was a disciple of Lao Tzu, who was who a lot of people think you know that wrote the Tao Te Ching so through that was how I really got interested in Zen through my meditation and that's how I got in touch with you and started getting more involved in the Soto Zen Center in Atlanta very happy to be invited and honored so far we'll find out <laughs> to, to be to be invited to the group and i will do my best to respond from my experience basis and zen experience is the most important thing uh, as directly as i can to whatever concerns we have tonight okay and i'm not an expert in addiction i have my own addictions i mean i have a viewpoint about what addiction means in Buddhism and Zen. And I've given some public lectures around that, which were well-received and researched, pretty well-researched. I'll be hoping to learn as much from you tonight as you learn from me. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, I was just going to say, let's start, if we could, with um, with the questions maybe that I had sent you, or maybe if we want to start before that, why don't... Uh, um, you share, if you want to share a little bit with us on your thoughts on addiction, maybe, because this is a recovery podcast, uh, maybe start there and see sure. where that goes. Well, it actually, I think I can in, uh, answer that in terms of the first question, because you, you asked a similar question there. So let me try that. Uh, I did want to say that in terms of process, we... We do have chants like Dharma opening verse, brief, brief, brief things with bells and things that are a little more formal beginning and ending of these kind of conversations. And Taoism was very influential on Buddhism as it came to China. And China is where it became Zen. Uh, and the influence of Taoism, to a lesser extent, I think Confucianism, were part of what made it uh, Zen. So there's no real conflict between Zen and Taoism. Uh, some kinds of forms of Buddhism uh, may be a little more uh, opinionated or uh, culturally different, but Zen is very down to earth, which I think Taoism is. And I think China, the, the Zen teachers in China, we have three major Zen teachers in our liturgy that, whose chants we chant on a regular basis. And buddy, I'm not sure I sent you the home practice book, but it has some of that material in it. Um, from China, and uh, 
because China was a big agricultural continent uh, kind of country like the United States, I think I feel a great affinity for the Chinese, uh, but more so even than for the Japanese, although Dogen in Japan is our main progenitor, you might say. He, he, he developed and refined this form of practice in the 13th century. So let me begin. Uh, on your articles, does Zen present a solution to addiction? And I had sent some articles to Buddy to read that were texts of some of the talks I had given on the subject. And uh, does Zen present a solution to addiction other than Zazen? And I know uh, uh, Zazen would eventually work uh, to surrender and turn compassion to the point of addressing any issue, that is, if you sat long enough. And he says, any Zen hacks. <laughs> Any shortcut. Any shortcuts. The shortcuts. Yes. Since I want the shortcuts. <laughs> we all want the shortcut. I'm afraid Zen takes the long view. Some things happen, uh, very short term kind of benefits from Zen meditation. We think Zen meditation is different from other kinds of meditation. We can talk about those differences. Uh, and he's saying the, the hack I found in recovery is taking the concern off of my drinking. Alcohol was my issue and helping someone else with their drinking when I'm in deep, my deepest need. The strength in keeping with the same addiction for some reason that does not have the same effect when I work with somebody with another addiction. So there's the, the it reminds me of the Bodhisattva vow, the Bodhisattva vow in Buddhism which is Zen is a part of this tradition, a so-called Mahayana or greater vehicle tradition. A bodhisattva means something like enlightening being. It does not mean enlightened being, but it's a person on the path who is doing their best. And the way we actualize the practice is by trying to help others, in spite of the, our own lack of, of any true insight or understanding. Uh, so... It's a holistic kind of process in the, in the very action of trying to help others. We learn uh, what the path is all about. And this is not uh, exclusive to Buddhism. This is very much a Christian charitable kind of idea. It's, it's not, it's not uh, we don't own this. So I would say Zen presents a solution to addiction, which would include what you, what Buddy mentioned. Uh, but we begin with the principle that according to Buddhism, or Zen in particular, everything is addiction. Everybody is an addict. And these, these may be principles of the, the Alcoholics Anonymous program. Uh, there's a guy named, was it Ben Osloff? What's his name? I'm confusing him with a political name now. But he was in prison, and he wrote about doing time and so forth. And there are writers in Zen who have written a great deal about the uh, AA process, putting oneself in the hands of a higher power, and so forth. Some people uh, reject or resist the Christian notion of a Christian God that we're putting ourselves in the hands of, and, and uh, some have lobbied for a kind of a Zen approach to the same thing, because in our case, we it's not exactly a higher personal power outside of ourselves, but it's definitely, we did not create this. Uh, we're not God. And uh, while we say there's really no God in Buddhism, it means that if God is anything, God is everything. Uh, God is like an extra word. Uh, if God is the universe, then that's enough. You don't have to also have a God controlling the universe. It's manifesting as the universe and so forth. So we have terms like cosmic Buddha, Bhairochana Buddha, the universal Buddha, 
which you know may reduce to just a matter of semantics. So we don't we don't debate. We don't we don't go there. We don't play that. <laughs> we don't argue uh, those points. But we do maintain that life itself is an addiction. So we come into life through desire, according to classical Buddhism, a desire that precedes our birth. And this gets into fuzzy logic and kind of mystical thinking, but it basically puts the onus on us for our life. We don't blame our parents. We don't blame circumstance. We don't blame somebody else. Even if somebody murders me, I'm still at least 50% responsible for my death. Why? Because I'm responsible for my life. And so we own that. We take responsibility for it. Uh, Again, we're not responsible for all of it. We didn't create it. Uh, We didn't make it the way it is. And in Buddhism, it's not considered perfect. The three marks of what are called dukkha, which is badly translated as suffering, it means something like change. Galaxies colliding are dukkha. It's very impersonal. It's a universal principle of change. And this is very much like uh, early Western philosophy and Plato and Socrates. It, the, the, the physical world is a world of change, uh, constant change, impermanent, imperfect, insubstantial. These are the marks of so-called dukkha or change. But as human beings, we take that personally. We're caught up in it. Some things we don't want to change, but they insist on changing. Some things we try to change and we can't change them. So it gets to be a very personal form of suffering for us. And the more we, the more we kick and scream and struggle, the, the worse we make it. But uh, so we look at it as a form of addiction. That is, the definition of an addictive, addictive substance is that if you withdraw it from the person, it uh, results in uh, uh, great discomfort. Or, or pain and suffering and so forth. And the different uh, so-called addictive substances are regarded as having more or less profound effects on different kinds of metabolisms in different people. We had a half a dozen medical doctors come to the Zen Center many years ago from a local uh, halfway house or some place that they were training. And, and uh, the people who ran that they sent them to the Zen Center to sit with us and try to sit through their withdrawal symptoms, sit through the withdrawal, be able to sit with it. So people in, in, in the business end of it have long recognized the efficacy of meditation in helping with de- dealing with withdrawal. So we think of meditation itself as a process of withdrawal. The Dalai Lama it is said that his daily meditation is a withdrawal from life itself. It's a kind of dying to the self. And they have these very complex models of the winds and the chakras and all this stuff happening inside and the way they go through the process. But we, we look at it as we, Zen is a very simple and sort of very reductionist. And says that if you just simply sit still enough, long enough, you will yourself come to these same findings and conclusions that Buddha did and that others did. So we don't try to give you too many models for how you should be going about this, what you should be thinking, what you should be experiencing. We don't do guided meditation. We just give you basic instructions and then you sit and you go through your own meditation. Then when you have questions come up. You can come back to somebody like me, and I will do my best to try to answer those questions. The theory being that I've been there, done that. 
that I've probably gone through something like you're going through uh, to some degree. So if you think of addiction that way, uh, and an addictive substance, if withdrawn, causes uh, you know, pain or suffering uh, uh, very quickly or withdrawal, that's what air is. It takes about five minutes and you're dead, right? If you don't, if you don't have oxygen, you can't breathe. Water is like that. It takes longer. Food is like that. Comfort, status, prestige, power, wealth. These are all considered addictive. And uh, gambling, one of the other addictions I studied when I was doing research, my brother and sister and brother-in-law were in Las Vegas. She was a line broad and a solo dancer. And he was, he was the guy at the casino who decided whether the Japanese whales could have another million dollars in credit tonight. Um, I always wondered about that. Uh, and my brother-in-law said, don't gamble. He said, you know, the odds are not in your favor and so forth. So they, they themselves did not gamble. The people who is like selling drugs, a lot of drug dealers don't take the drug themselves. But uh, what it said about gambling was that the gambler gets high on the adrenaline rush or the fear of losing and bets more and more and more, and it just gets the high higher and higher and higher, and then sure enough, they lose, of course. Uh, so each kind of addiction to a substance is seen like that. But in our view, identifying the substance as the problem is uh, uh, incomplete. And these doctors who came said, they, a couple of them, we went out for lunch afterwards, and they couldn't, have, they couldn't drink a beer or anything like that. Uh, and uh, a couple of them said they were addicted to marijuana. Now, I smoked marijuana back in the 60s. I even grew some. And I can't see how I could get addicted to it. And they say now it's much stronger, more THC and so forth. But they said, that's not, the, that's not it. It's not the substance alone. It's the relationship of the substance to your metabolism. And the way they interact is what creates the addiction. So that was a new thing for me. I didn't, I didn't understand that. But a lot of the um, research is going on just in common addictions like eating, overeating, obesity. Uh, they're saying that it's not only the connection of the metabolism to the, to the addiction, uh, and anorexia would be the opposite side of that. Uh, one of our guys uh, formed a, a, a foundation because his daughter at 35 died of anorexia. So he founded a foundation to try to cure, cure anorexia as much as possible. But they said, if you're the kind of person when you get, you're under stress by screen, for instance, they said, next time, try eating with the other hand. Because they were saying, it's not just you and the, substance but it's the environment and uh if you change some detail of that or change the environment it's going to be a lot easier for you to overcome the addiction so my wife was a smoker uh my current wife my first wife was too but she was able to quit smoking in about 10 years living with me and it was partly because when she when we moved in together uh, she kept cigarettes around in the refrigerator in places where if she wanted one, she could get one. She didn't go cold turkey. I didn't smoke. And I think uh, she attributed it to two things. One is the environment uh, was not a bar where people are drinking beer and smoking uh, and so forth. Uh, and that she had access to it if she wanted it. It wasn't a cold turkey uh, kind of thing. 
and the, fa- the fact that I didn't smoke. But also she, think, she said she came to the conclusion she's very sort of liberal in her politics and anti-corporate. Uh, she said um, she thought that the tobacco companies want you to believe that it's almost impossible to quit. So that when you try and fail, you, it's reinforced. So she found it, she thought, uh, a lot easier to quit than she thought it was going to be. So she thought part of it was the corporate structure behind what is profiting from the from the drug, nicotine or caffeine or whatever it happens to be. And um, so those three things kind of combined to make it easy for her to quit. So anyway, uh, the Zen hack would be the one the one you're talking about, which is helping others, which is a big one, and it's very active and operative. The other would be that the whole context is addiction. And for for instance, if a person who is the identified addict gets therapeutic training from the identified therapist, and the implication is that the therapist is not an addict and is is thereby able to help cure the addict, we think that's screwed up. We think that's not true in the first place because the therapist is going to be some kind of addict. And according to the Buddhist principle, just being alive shows you're an addict. You know, you're addicted to life, you're addicted to eating, you're addicted to breathing, water, et cetera, et cetera. That's all considered addiction. So we think it's a lot healthier attitude for those in the in the profession, the helping profession, to see themselves as an addict, treating an addict. And we're treating each other. My teacher, Matsuoka Roshi, would often say, we teach each other Buddhism. So Zen and Buddhism is kind of a two-way street that way. I probably learn more from you tonight than you will from me. Uh, Sensei, could you tell uh, any questions at this point for Sensei guys? If you do, unmute and I'll call on you. When you have a question, just unmute, and I'll be happy to call. Um, Sensei, how did you get interested in uh, Zen and meditation? How I know you've been at this a long time, but what what was the thing that uh, got you, that hooked you? Well, in the 60s, I was in my 20s in Chicago. That should tell you most of what you need to know. <laughs> I was uh, doing my graduate work at the Institute of Design which is so-called New Bauhaus, if you've heard of the Bauhaus in Weimar, Germany, at Illinois Tech. And um, I can't remember all the conditions at the time, but I was married, had two young children. I was teaching at the University of Illinois, Chicago Circle, and the School of the Art Institute. I had two jobs, a lot of stress. My marriage was not very happy. Uh, uh, Myself and my first wife were very different on very many, many issues. And we were married too young, 19 years old. And by the time we were 25, we had children. I was exempted from the Vietnam War once for being a student. Second time, this is the Kennedy administration for being married. And the third time for having a child. So that's how long it went. It spread over some five years. I I thought I was going to Vietnam, like a lot of other people did. Um, So my brother was a jazz pianist. Uh, he and my two sisters are now all deceased. I've outlived my siblings. They were all smokers, by the way. And uh, I'm pushing 80. So <laughs> I attribute most of my health and well-being physically to Zen practice because I haven't been that careful about taking care of myself. But um, 
uh, I was talking to a drummer friend of my brother, and this was LSD, uh, psilocybin, peyote, uh, all of the psychedelic so-called revolution that was simultaneous with the Vietnam War and all the other 1968 police riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. All of that stuff was happening very much like today. And uh, I was having uh, some nervous reactions like rash breakouts and things like that, or not so much that as uh, more like uh, my stomach becoming upset. Mm -hmm. So um, I was talking with uh, a drummer friend of my brother's. He he knew a lot of musicians in Chicago. He was kind of a a musician's musician in jazz. And I said something about LSD to him. It was a common subject. Uh, and he said, oh, I don't do that anymore. I just do Zen. I said, well, that's interesting. What's that all about? And he said, well, why don't you come with me this weekend? I'm going to the Zen, Zen Center, Zen Temple. So that weekend I went with him. It was on uh, Halstead near Fullerton, if you're familiar with Northside Chicago. It was a brownstone three-story walk-up. The Zen Center was on the first floor, and that's where Matsuoka lived in the bedroom. You know, living room, dining room, uh, hallway, bedroom off to the side, hallway to the kitchen and the back and so forth, railroad apartment. And the front two rooms were the little meditation hall. And so uh, I met Matsuoka Roshi. Uh, I can't remember our first, very first conversation, but he was, he was a, a very diminutive, uh, friendly, warm, funny Japanese guy. He was very formal uh, when you were there where he was in full robes and so forth. But when you go out for lunch, he had put on a Hamburg and a black velvet tie. He looked like an ordinary Japanese businessman. Fake diamond ring, the whole thing. <laughs> so very funny, uh, very warm. And I, when I told him about LSD, he laughed and he said, well, maybe you'll de- be my LSD master and I'll be your Zen master. <laughs> <laughs> so he took things very lightly. And a lot of the Zen teachers at that time were very freaked out and threatening to burn the temple down and stuff like that over the, over the uh, psychedelic drugs. I happened to meet Baba Ram Dass, Richard Alpert, who was one of those, he and Richard, he and Timothy Leary. He came and talked to my classes at uh, U of I. I still have a tape somewhere, reel to reel, quarter inch. I don't know, I know where it is, but I, I don't, my machine, my TIAC is so gummed up I can't listen to it unless I clean my TIAC. So anyway, that's kind of the way I backed into it, like I backed into everything else. But it was at a time when my marriage was falling apart. I was under a lot of stress. And uh, Matsuoka Roshi was very helpful in, in, in um, coaching me through that period. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions, guys? Yes, yeah, Mark? I'll ask a question. A lot of um, my addiction, as I understand it, is also an attachment to a habit, which is different than being addicted. There's also attachment to the habit. Yeah, I understand smoking is like that, the mechanical part of it. Yeah, right. I never yeah. got into smoking much, a little bit, but not enough. Well, to that's good. I was going to ask you if you met Ram Das, because your story's like paralleled. Well, he told his story of going to India and meeting the guru, which you yeah. may have heard. He's told it a lot. And he actually mentioned my Zen Center in the Be Here, Be Here Now uh, in the back. 
uh, in some list he put in there, I think we were mentioned the Atlanta Zen Center, but uh, that this was many, many years before I moved to Atlanta. And he came to my house that night and cooked chapati and beans for me and my wife. And I had, the room was full of these geodesic structures, sticks glued together to make geometric solids. I was teaching Buckminster Fuller geodesic geometry as part of my classes. And so he was very impressed by that. And another funny connection there, uh, later I met Klaus Oldenburg at uh, University of Southern Chicago, what's it called, Southern Chicago, I can't remember. Anyway, uh, he was doing a seminar down there, and he was he was working on his soft sculpture of the Chrysler Airstream, if you're familiar with that. And there's all this stuff hanging around, fabric and sewing and stuff like this, and he's talking. Amongst other things, he said, the artist to create the beautiful naturally turns to the ugly. <laughs> so, if you think about it, oil paint or paint is just mud, right? It's refined, refined mud. So uh, as, as chance would have it, when Ram Das came through, he was driving a Chrysler Airstream. That's what he was driving. <laughs> it was a coincidence. And he had these big, big uh, jars of uh, powder, flour, and uh, beans and so forth that he brought in and cooked. So that was, uh, that was quite an introduction. But the, the, the main he, – he would sort of zoom on, in on you with his eyes, you know, and he'd like ah. – <laughs> he was very tall. And uh, there was another guy like that named Minami. Minami-san was uh, our host first time I ever went to Japan to Eheiji, the monastery there. And Minami was kind of like that. He wasn't as tall, but he had this big, long head. He looked like an alien or like an insect. And he had these eyes that were just weird and piercing. He'd kind of lean in on you when he talked to you, and you'd go, you know, sort of back away from him. But Ramdas made a very strong impression on me. Um, I later went to see him when he was in Atlanta. He didn't remember me. I don't think he was senile or anything. It just, you know, I wasn't that big a deal to him. But I'm going to find that tape. <laughs> I'm going to dig it out. Did you have something else on that? No, I've I've listened to all of his um, recordings. At least his, I think I've listened to all of them. Yeah. Recordings. He, he told the story of giving the guru five hits of LSD. Right. Yeah. Because the guru was eating food that people were bringing him, and uh, this young American expatriate had taken him to the guru and was crying as they were going up the mountain and so forth. So it was a very meaningful experience for many people. And the idea is he's eating your karma. So people would bring in plates of food, and he would eat, you know, sweets and things like that. He's eating their karma. So Ram Das is telling him this story about the five hits of L- about LSD, and he said, "Oh, something about well, let me." What is that? You know, he said, should we get? He took the five hits and took them all. <laughs> and Ram Dass said, nothing seemed to happen. <laughs> the idea in eating the karma is he can take it. It can go straight through him without any effect. And so he can eat your karma. And uh, later in the exchange, I think it was another night they came back. Uh, the guru was talking about Ram Das and his life and his mother, and he said, she died of spleen. <laughs> Ram Das said, his head just exploded <laughs> because there's no way this guru can know that, right? <laughs> How could he know? So he said, my mind was like a computer 
going berserk, trying to rationalize this, figure this out until it couldn't, and it just exploded. And his, that was his way of describing his first profound uh, insight experience with Scott. <laughs> Any other questions, guys, at this point? I know Craig's got a question. We'll hold his for later. But we don't want to emphasize miracles too much in Zen. We think uh, everyday life is the miraculous. Um, Search of the Miraculous by P.D. Uspinski, we say, you don't have to go any further than your Christian. And Dogen says that. He says, uh, what use is um, the tiptoes of enlightenment or the pilgrimage? What use is going other places to find enlightenment because it's completely present where you are? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we're, we're already complete, right? We just don't know yeah. it. But of course, he had just come back from China. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's easy for him to say, right? Yeah. Understanding in Zen, you don't look for miracles because well, they just are. It's just life happening. We look into our direct experience. It starts with the senses. The Heart Sutra starts out, um, Shariputra form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. Or is innately emptiness, emptiness innately form. Uh, same for feeling, thought, impulse, conscious, no eye, no ear, in, given emptiness. Emptiness, shunyata, means something like not the void, but the dynamic principle in which everything is changing, uh, the, the things we talked about before, impermanence and so forth. Uh, so given emptiness, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, no seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, no realm of sight, no realm of thought. So it challenges our very sensory perception right from the get-go. So what we examine when we sit in meditation is just exactly what we're experiencing. That's where we put our attention. And that's very difficult to do because, you know, mind is very busy and we go off on trains of thought and uh, we feel urges, addictive urges to do, do something less boring and more interesting, right? Um, so it becomes, the discipline becomes a matter of just sticking with it and not giving up until you sit still enough, long enough, that you sort of push that envelope of your own consciousness. And the idea of saying, given emptiness, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, doesn't say that they're not real, that they don't exist. It's saying that we're only experiencing one side of it. And in order to experience the other side, you have to push that envelope. The way we do it is by sitting still with fixed gaze, breathing deeply. So very, very stupid, simple in terms of method, but very difficult of execution because we are very complicated and we give up. We give up too soon. Sensei, how important important is it that uh, I know in Zen you sit with with your eyes open just uh, to get – I was always taught starting out that, that I close my eyes when I meditate. There are, kinds, there are forms of meditation where they recommend that, and mindfulness meditation is one of the popular ones now. But we, we, we have to ask the question, how mindful can it be if you're not even including vision? Mm-hmm. Mindful of what? It's got to be then mindful of thoughts, thinking thoughts, you know. Mm-hmm. So that, to us, is a very limited idea. In, in the Bauhaus tradition, the learning process is very sensory. The whole first year is called a foundation in, in the university level, where all you do is work with wood and glass and metal and stone and plaster and 
clay and, you know, all these different materials in shops. And your teacher gives you an assignment, but it's not like building a birdhouse. There's no objective to the assignment. It's more like a, they give you a very difficult technical assignment, like to make perfect cubes out of slabs of clay. You know, they can be fired then and, and, and made into a geometric sculpture. And that's extremely difficult and plaster and so forth. So what happens, though, is you assimilate by immersion. You assimilate how wood behaves, how clay behaves, how plaster behaves, how, how steel behaves, how glass behaves. So then when you go into secondary operations of drawing and designing a table, for instance, or a chair, it's probably not going to break, right? Because you've absorbed the uh, nature of the material through your senses by working with it. So the principle in Zen is very similar. It's just that uh, the medium that we're working with when we sit in Zazen, the medium that we're immersed in is our own consciousness. It's not an external medium. But the process is very similar, and I'm an artist as well. I do painting. And one thing artists do and musicians do is try to get out of the way, right, so that the medium expresses itself. And so those are very Zen and very Bauhaus ideas. They're very synchronous with each other. So if you can just accept that every time you sit down in meditation, uh, you don't have to do or think anything special. Just pay attention to what happens uh, because you're studying the medium of awareness or consciousness itself. One of our great teachers, Koro Suwaki Roshi, uh, for one thing he said was, he, he said, what are you staring at? Don't you know it's about you? <laughs> and then his, his, uh, student Uchiyama Roshi was the same age as Matsuoka Roshi said uh, Zazen or Zen meditation is self-selfing self in the original Japanese is self-selfing self. So in translation, Okamura Roshi who was one of my teachers who was his student said uh, the self studying the self through the self. So the subject, the predicate, the object of the sentence are all one, just the same thing. But we would say consciousness, studying consciousness through consciousness, maybe, something like that. Mm -hmm. Very circular. But uh, we think this is where it starts and where it has to begin with the senses, just like a Bauhaus training and an immersive kind of process and patience. You have to develop a lot of patience with yourself. Uh, but eventually, we think it transcends the sens sensory level. We see through the senses, like watching a movie. Mm -hmm. You know, you, somebody makes a noise over you and you turn your room or you're in a theater and somebody's eating popcorn or something, and you, but you were vicariously participating in the movie up until then. And now you can remember that it's just light photons hitting a screen and there's something behind the screen. So this is the way Zen looks at reality. This that we're experiencing is like a four-dimensional four movie, you could say. Uh, and by sitting still enough with fixed gaze, you begin to see through it, you could say. But it was said to have called it a marvelous projection. In those days, they didn't have TV or movies. They had uh, shadow puppets and stuff. Mm -hmm. But he said this reality that we take for granted, we think we know, when we sit and let it reveal itself, then we see that it is kind of like a projection. It is like a projection in a way. Since I, I got my first cushion for Father's Day, I'd never had a cushion to sit on. I, I'd always just sit half lotus. Yes. 
and uh, it really helped. I was really surprised at how much the cushion, it's the little round cushion helped. Yeah, it perches you up a little bit so that your hips are above your knees. That's very critical. You don't want your knees to be on the same plane as your hips because they push you back. I'm building one now. I'm a designer builder still. Um, I'm building a box which has a slope to it, which is about the right slope. And it contains a bag. Um, I originally thought sand, but sand is too heavy, so you'd be like sitting on the beach, mm -hmm. uh, uh, upholstered in fabric. Mm -hmm. But what I'm using now is uh, styrofoam uh, peanuts in a bag. Mm -hmm. I'm going to see if that works. So that you can sit where you have more surface supporting your, your thighs and your calves and your legs. You sort of nestle into it like you would at the beach, nestling into the sand. So you get a lot of surface support there. It puts less strain. If it's just your knees touching and your butt sitting on the cushion, then you have a necessary kind of strain in the ligament system there. So I'm thinking there could be some more comfortable uh, ways, and Zen should, Zen should be the comfortable way, Zen meditation. But it's really hard to improve on the Zafu. It's just a genius level of design with simplicity, very important in Zen and design. And we think it probably was developed in China. They were very, very, very clever, very brilliant. Craig, what do you have, sir? Yeah, so you just touched on um, getting comfortable when meditating. In Zazen, um, yep. Yeah, I, I, used, I used to find it, well, I still do. I still do find it very difficult to, to sit down uh, and be still when meditating because I get pain in my back. I get, I, maybe I'm just not disciplined. Maybe I'm just not, not, not trying hard enough or maybe I'm just not letting go enough. Um, but I do find it very uncomfortable. Is, is, there, any, is there any tips that you can offer to Yeah, to I would say, I would say uh, don't sit still. We, we, stillness in, uh, in Zen and motion in Zen are seen as complementary, like dark and light or hot and cold. So there's no absolute stillness. And we enforce a, a greater level of relative stillness when we sit in Zazen, but then we get up and do walking meditation. So then there's a relative degree of motion. But this term, uh, ancient Chinese term, mokurai, means stillness, stillness in motion, motion in stillness. The stillness is in the motion, the motion is in the stillness. So Ironically, the stiller you sit, the more still you sit, the more you begin to experience motion in your body. You experience it in the form of pain sometimes, like your back or your knee. And um, uh, sometimes you start to feel your bloodstream or you feel numbness and you feel, you know, more subtle levels of sensory um, tactility, uh, very deep. Uh, and the same thing for vision. You start to see light and color and movement. You start to hear sounds you don't ordinarily hear. So your senses become much more acute uh, during, during uh, part of the process. Uh, they also go through a process of habituation or adaptation eventually. So it kind of shuts down and opens back up. So there are many different ways of thinking about it. But we think of it as physiological. So if your body is hurting, if you are hurting, it may mean that you're actually sitting crooked. And so we recommend you adjust your posture, uncross your legs, cross them the other way, sit on a chair instead. Um, this is not an endurance contest. This is, uh, this is a method of be, be, being able to enter into very deep and profound stillness where the habituation or adaptation process becomes profound. 
so that you begin to see through your senses. You begin to see through all of this. And it becomes more unified. Uh, in the beginning, it's all divided up into seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, so forth, thinking. That all starts to merge. My teacher said when posture, breath, and attention all come together in a unified way, that is the real Zazen. But then Zen goes further, and uh, Master Dogen taught Shikantaza, which means something like just precisely sitting, is objectless meditation. So when you go even deeper, you have to say that the subject-object separation starts to merge, and you lose track of where you begin and end and where everything else starts and ends. So a metaphor for that is our skin. You know, our skin, we think of as separating ourselves from everything else, but it just as much joins us to everything else. And if you look at it under an electron microscope, you can see it's very very penetrated and a lot of traffic going in and out. So those are on different scales, but the point, the principle still holds that if you just can sit still enough long enough, then you'll find a sweet spot in the middle of the posture where everything distributes completely equally, becomes a, a form of equilibrium or equipoise, and you have a, a sensation of effortlessness. Now this is not to set up goals and objectives for you to try to achieve, but just to understand that through the process of adaptation and allowing yourself to sink into the distress a little more than you out of your comfort zone, uh, the, most of it is a stretching of the tendons, the hard tissue around the joints, the stretching and adapting. So when I say don't sit still, I mean, you can sit there, you, you know what davening means like in a, synagogue where the men are davening and bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. You can sit there and just sort of bounce that way uh, periodically. And we say in the beginning and at the end, lean left and right, like a big pendulum swing, lean forward and back, round and round and round and round in a spiral. And so if, if you feel yourself getting out of balance and things are getting difficult, adjust your posture. My teacher said, you have to work your way through every bone in your body. There are lots of bones in, the, in your body. So we take a very aggressive, almost aerobic approach to this. And what happens is by allowing yourself to move, then you will, you'll stay comfortable and you'll get to the point where you can say, okay, I can stop moving for a while now. And once you find that sweet spot, and it isn't where you think it is, Two pressure points you want to think of is in the base of your spine, you might want to reach your fist around and push in the base of your spine, push forward and down. I call it Hakuin's gas pedal. Hakuin recommended this very strongly. He said, push hard enough that there's a little pain there at the bottom, base of your spine, because the vertebrae there are huge, and the, the, the tendons between them are what you're stretching by, by leaning forward. Most people sit in a cashew or kind of C-shape on a, at a at their at their chair at the office and so forth. You want to reverse that and sit in an S shape like a cobra. So the bottom, like a cobra rising off the floor, the bottom of your spine is arched in, pushing down, forward and down hard. And I call it Hawkwind's gas pedal because in your car, as long as you keep a little pressure on the gas pedal, the vehicle goes. When you let off the gas pedal, it goes to a stop. So you want to keep that pressure point. The other pressure point is in the back of the neck. You pull back on your chin till you feel stretching in the back of your neck. So at the top of your 
spine, at the bottom of your spine, you have these two pressure points, like a cobra, ready to strike. Very vigorous, very physical, very muscular posture. It's not slumping and relaxing. What the relaxation that happens is on, an, on the nerve level. It's not on the muscular level. The muscular level is like a tension membrane that is surrounding the bones. The bones are the compression members, like the, like the post in a tent. The canvas is the tension that's stretching. So you can take a long um, piece of cloth and you can wrap it around your knees and around your neck and cross it in the X in the front and you can tighten that and you will feel it pull that membrane into alignment. That's what you're trying, where you're trying to get to, where the muscles in your body are all in equal balance. If you relax one set of muscles, the muscles on the other side of that bone have to take up the slack. So they can't be relaxed. So it's not exactly relaxation. It's, it's complete balance. One set of muscles on one side of the skeleton come into complete balance with muscles on the other side. And uh, again, there's a sweet spot just like in the middle of a guitar or a, uh, a drum, uh, and it's right in the middle of your right in the middle of your being. So the rocking forward and back and left and right helps you continue to look for that sweet spot where you can sit upright, and yet it becomes it's the most efficient posture. It becomes very uh, low energy consumption, so you can sit for long periods of time without without becoming tired. Very physical. Uh, Sensei, I know, I know on your website you have several beginner meditations. Started talking about instruction on beginning meditation and intermediate. That uh, I've listened to the majority of those. I think I sent them to you as uh, they they were originally CDs, but we put them online now. Right. I think I sent you the links to that in our home practice book. So you should share those with everybody, or send me a note. By the way, the way this works for me, because I'm, I'm working with 50 to 100 students at any time, uh, any follow-up that anybody wants, please just send me an email, and I will follow on it immediately when I get the email. Well, not immediately, but soon. Yeah. But I, I, can't, I won't remember. I won't, it's not that my memory is fading. I just use my email as my short-term memory. So anything that you're interested in that you've heard me say, they, since I'd like you to send me that thing, you know, I'll send it right back to you. And I'll also put you in contact with the people who can connect you up with our other programs. I, I'm, I'm out of my depth online. What we're doing now is way beyond me, but we have a very good online team. People understand social media. Sensei, tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the Soto Zen Center, because I'm going to put some links to the center in the, in the show notes. Well, of course, what we're doing now is uh, we're hoping we can reopen in person. And I'm not making political comments here. I tell everybody I'm registered interdependent. <laughs> so <laughs> we don't want to take any chances. We have six residents and we don't want to endanger them. We do hold morning meditation there and we send out uh, 11 o'clock every Sunday morning um, our Dharma disc dialogue. Last week it was a guest teacher, Kuya. She is uh, she's a former member of our lineage. Uh, from British Columbia, and she's a person who helps me with editing on my texts and so forth. She gave a, a brilliant talk on women teaching Zen to women and the difference between the gender differences between practicing with women and men and so forth. It was one of those kinds of issues, which is part of the bigger issue of race and stereotyping in general and caste system and all that. 
So uh, Sunday mornings, we have that. We stream that. And you can, I think you go on Facebook for that. Uh, again, we can give you guidance on all these. Tuesday Tuesday evenings, we have our, um, we call it a Cloud Dharma. Our, our family name is Cloud. My Dharma name is Tai Un, means Great Cloud. Un means cloud. So we use that as our second uh, family name for all of our priests. And Cloud Dharma is our uh, Tuesday night reading group, which tends to be a pretty heavy-duty book. Uh, the one we're going into now is... Uh, uh, women teaching about Zen, so it's a little more topical. The last one was three fascicles of Dogen commentary by Uchiyama, which was kind of dense. But Uchiyama is a wonderful, funny guy, very down to earth, and even profane, you might say, <laughs> a lot of his commentary. Uh, then we have a Monday night uh, reading group here in Atlanta, but it's online now as well. So we have we have quite a lot of activity, and there are morning meditations at seven thirty. I think they're hosted out of Montana. So what we've done with our dozen or so affiliates we have around the country and in Canada, we have gone online with a lot, and uh, we're surprised that our, our attendance is uh, really uh, building, holding steady, and building. We're having new new members, such as buddies, such as you, come online and find out about us. And uh, it's helped in all kinds of ways. Financially, because we have the six residents and some of them are new, we just had to let two go. Uh, two, were, two more came to fill in for them. Uh, that fills in our finances uh, a bit uh, at the Atlanta Zen Center. It's not a huge budget. And I'm, I'm the only one who's paid anything. I take home a minister's household expense. But we've been able to kind of break even and stay even uh, in spite of the downturn. So we're pretty we're pretty happy about that. Good. I'm going to put the uh, what's the URL to the Atlanta Zen Center? Do you know that off the top of your head? Yeah, it's www.azzc.org. A S Atlanta Soto S O T O Z for Zen Center C for Center. So it's azzc.org. Good. I'll put that in the notes too, and any any other yeah. links that would be helpful. Uh, I do have a question. One more Zen-related meditation question. For someone beginning, how long should should they be meditating? What's, is there a length of time that you recommend for a beginner? Is it Not, not, not really, not as a cookie cutter. My teacher, Matsuoka Roshi, would say, sit five minutes, you're five minutes Buddha. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sit a half hour, you're Buddha for a half hour. Say, well, wouldn't you rather be Buddha all day kind of thing? So we recommend uh, that people try as hard as they can. Uh, it's kind of like filing. They say, if you hate filing paper, say, okay, I'm going to file it for 15 minutes. And so you get yourself to do that. And then you find yourself filing for maybe 30 minutes. Right. So, um, it comes down to a, an average, not a cookie cutter, but I think an average in our culture, uh, where our, our approach is designed for lay people have jobs and households and cars to keep on the road and stuff like that. Uh, so our practice has to come in underneath everything else you're already doing and supporting it, like a floor on a, on a building. You can't put a new floor on top of a building and collapse the building. You have to put it underneath. So Zen is like that. It has to come under in under and the meditation and all that has to support what you're already doing. So our recommendation is if you can, get up a little earlier, <clears throat> sit for some time in the morning, even if you only sit on the side of your bed. And uh, 
<clears throat> then you may move to a, a Zafu and meditation cushion someplace else in the house and set up a little altar and temple setting. Uh, a lot of people try to replicate the ambiance of the environment at the Zen Center for good reasons. But it's so simple that you don't really need to do that. If you can trick yourself into sitting 5, 10, 15 minutes in the morning, you might find that growing to a half an hour. Uh, what you don't do is you don't panic and run around like a chicken with your head off uh, trying to remember all the things you have to get done today and what comes first and so forth. Uh, it's kind of like a clearinghouse. You become, uh, because of the breathing and the sitting posture uh, calms you down, if you've had any practice, an extensive practice in a zendo, it's like motor muscle memory starts to kick in. As soon as you take the posture, whether you're driving on the expressway, at the office, in a boardroom, wherever you happen to be, uh, if it's stressful and you, you find yourself, your body starts moving into the posture and your breathing starts getting deeper. It, you don't, it's not intentional. It's your body's taking over. It's teaching you. And uh, we, that's the way we approach it. We follow the body. We follow the breath. We don't try to control it. And what you find is then that starts coming into your daily life, like motor muscle memory. And so for a beginner, uh, take it at your own pace. Uh, you can do five minutes, ten minutes. And then uh, another part of the pattern is many people sit just before they go to sleep. I recommend keeping a Zafu on or near your bed, as I do. And then if you can't sleep, you have insomnia, something's bothering you, you can just pull it up and sit up and face your headboard and kind of replicate the Zendo experience right there on your bed. Pretty soon you're yawning and falling asleep. And then uh, it, it changes your dreams. Your dream dreams become part of the process. So it's kind of bookending your day, morning and night. And it doesn't, I don't think it matters how long. I don't think the measurables are important. Just that you don't give up. Mm-hmm. And they will increase or decrease depending on circumstance. And uh, if you... If you're very judgmental about that, you might discourage yourself. You set yourself up for failure. And so we say, go against type. Don't, don't do Zen the way you do everything else. Let it be special. Like as a kid, if you got to go in the car with mom, you were happy. You got to go, right? Mom said, no, you can't go. You, you're unhappy. So I think Zen fits in that category. It's something we get to do. It's not something we have to do. Right. Yeah, that's good. And then uh, once a week, uh, people go to the Zendo for a longer training session. And we have Saturdays when we're in full, full session from 9 to, f- 9 to 4 every first Saturday, the second Saturday of the month. And then we have longer sessions, like three, four, and five days, and even longer over weekends and into weeks. And we have a mountain retreat up in uh, Hayesville, North Carolina, 100 acres. So we go up there for rural, longer retreats. So it's the kind of thing where you can stick your toe in the shallow end of the pool and swim down to the deep end, you know, at your own pace. I did not like uh, your answer for me when I asked you how long I should be meditating. You told me I would know how long. <laughs> I wanted a rule. I wanted well, you the, to tell here, me. Here's, I, here's the rule. <laughs> if there's any doubt in your mind, it's not enough. Right. <laughs> yes. You will know when it's enough. <laughs> I liked your idea, too, of leaving um, a legal pad out that if there was yep. some idea, yep, I thought that was good. Well, everybody has to be creative these days. We have to be creative about Zen. We have to reinvent it, really, for ourselves. And uh, 
Master Dogen said, when you're doing zazen, set aside all everyday concerns. Think neither good nor evil, right or wrong. So that's a pretty high, that's a pretty high bar. Because the first thing you find out when you sit down and you just sort of bring everything to a stop is all this stuff comes flying in on you. So we say keep a notepad. Um, if you're a student in particular, if you're working on creative projects, or it's stuff you have to think through and remember. And relationships are like that too. So it really applies to everybody. Uh, and when you're sitting in uh, Zazen, it's like the hypnagogic and hypnopompic states just before and after you fall asleep and wake up, when you're half awake, half asleep, your mind becomes very uninhibited. Uh, one of Matsuoka's teachings was on this called 360 degrees in, the third, three-fourths away around, it's imagination thinking. Uh, we, we can talk about that sometime. But at that time, you may have an aha or eureka moment that comes to you that uh, in the hurly-burly of everything you wouldn't ordinarily get. And then you sit there and worry that you're going to forget it, right? So the, the, the suggestion is just jot it down. You know, jot down a few key words. You'll get back to that later. You don't have to worry about that now. And you don't have to worry about forgetting it. I'm a designer, so sometimes I'll do a quick little sketch. And something occurs to me, oh, that's how I need to do, build that or make that. Um, and it does two things. It does what Dogen said. Setting, it set, helps you set aside everyday concerns for now. You get back to that later, and your projects are important. That was a point Matsuoka Roshi made. You can't separate uh, Zen practice from daily life and all of its obligations. And then uh, the second thing it does is it has you come back to this, come back to Zazen. And so you have to ask yourself, well, what am I coming back to then if it's not all that stuff, right? So we don't think it's uh, necessary to try to gin up a, a coherent answer to that question, but more important that you simply nurture that question. And you keep asking that question as you come, what, what the hell am I doing? What, what are we doing here? What is this about? And uh, that question just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Hmm, that's good. Craig, what do you have, sir? And then, Craig, you going to present your question? I, I will at the end. I will at the end, but I, I want to be respectful of the time. So, Tina um, and Kate haven't said anything. We're calling you out. <laughs> Don't so be shy. You, you um, it, it's interesting that you mentioned um, about the quality of sleep um, when you, when you meditate at night time. Um, a, a lot of us in recovery, uh, more, more particularly for our alcoholism, we tend to suffer from what they call drink dreams. So we um, we, we, we tend to dream that we're out out drinking and. Um, the, the dreams are that realistic, and I usually find that I have this when when my routines kind of out of sort. Or I've, I've not been I've, I've not been practicing my, my, my program as well as maybe I should do. So, uh, is, is there particular times that you would encourage people to meditate more? Times you'd encourage people to maybe meditate a little bit less because of the dreams, or because of yeah, I, I use, yeah I, I usually find that if I've, if I've been meditating at night time, I, I tend to get I tend to get a better quality of sleep. Um, you can't sleep very well. You can't sleep very yeah. well. Yeah. Well, the recommendation in the old days, they say that the old monks in China and so forth they would take a vow to never lie down again. They would sit up all night. So one of the theories is that when you're sitting in zazen, as as it becomes the real zazen, it's it's just as beneficial as sleep. And again, when you're sleeping, all the benefits of zazen rain down on you, but all un, un, unconscious. 
So I have the luxury of being retired uh, from business life, so I don't have to do a nine to five or anything like that. So I basically sleep around the clock like Edison or Buck, Buck Finster Fuller was in his own time zone. He was flying all over the world all the time. So I have uh, I do not adopt the uh, eight or nine hours of sleep a night as normal. I sleep at least in two shifts. And when you research Zen online or sleep online, you'll find out that apparently the historical pattern has always been more more like two shifts a night. And people in Spain still get up at midnight and go out and party and come home, go back to sleep, and then go to work in the morning. So I questioned from the beginning the norm, the social norm of that we have to get this much sleep and we have to get it in this kind of pattern. Now, you don't have that luxury if you have to show up at 8 o'clock and be bright and chipper at the, at the office. So I'm not recommending this, but I think you want to take a more creative view of uh, sleep and wake and assume that your body and you trust your mind, uh, kind of know how to handle this. And if you can't sleep, then we recommend then sit instead, sit up instead. And uh, so we go against some of the sleep therapists and, and those kinds of suggestions. And then when you do sleep, uh, treat it as part of your meditation. And so if you do have a, a drink dream or uh, something like that, pay attention, right? It has something to teach you. We had uh, one of our men members was a very strong alcoholic, brilliant guy, worked in uh, Huntsville and uh, rocket ship switches and stuff. And uh, I said, well, the next time you find you've fallen off the wagon, he was a pretty young guy, I said, go sit, go sit while you're drunk. And just le- jump into it as far as you can go and see what it is, right? So, and that would not be recommended by most therapists. So our approach is a little different. It's like having a nightmare. We try to turn around and face the nightmare instead of running away. If that makes sense. And you're creative. You have to trust your mind, you know. Uh, it'll, it'll get you through this. Um. Tina, Kate, y'all have anything uh, for Sensei before we close? Hi, I'm Tina. Thanks for joining us today. I'm. I I would actually um, like to read up some more about the dreams um, and the meditation. Uh, I too have struggled with sleep, and I think that's one of the reasons I would drink. I started drinking when I was young to sleep. I had a hard time shutting yep. my mind off. Sure, sure. Uh, and I the same problem, same problem, breathing exercises. And I know I'm supposed to keep up on them and it's the habit, uh, for a short period of time last year, probably about three months, I had, uh, hypnopompic hallucinations. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't consider them hallucinatory. And that's what <laughs> so I went, my, my counselor was a little, of course they gave me like heavy meds, but it, and I tried to lean into them. They were very real. They were, yeah, yeah. first they were auditory and then they yeah. were in my room. Lucid. At very. Yeah. And I'd be awake. I'd be in a wake state and still be seeing them and they were there or I'd be, you know, moving to like walk around them. Like it, I thought it was going crazy. Well, there's an interesting study that was done. Uh, there's a lot of work been done on blind, the blind and, and uh, pumping video signals into the 
into a pad on the tongue and on the back where the blind can see. Uh, uh, the the bl- brain is plastic. The new new idea theory of brain is that it it can adapt. And one of the uh, interesting experiments that was done, and this was not blind people; these were sighted people. But they they put uh, electrodes into parts of the visual cortex, which is the biggest part of the of the outer cortex. I understand natural image, where most of the information is coming from. And they fed these video images into uh, the, these brains of these people. And they could see the video. It was just floating here in the air in front of everything else they were seeing. <laughs> so you could think of your dreams like that. They're like, you know, mine are so vivid and so lucid. I can't be making this stuff up. There's no way. I mean, I, I'm not that creative. <laughs> and and very uh, memorable. So we considered a, a legitimate area of study. And the, the dividing line between wake and sleep is very thin. I was sitting one time at Okamura's place in Bloomington, Indiana. It was long, long retreat. These were 50-minute periods of sitting with 10 minutes interval walking, 50-minute period, 10, 50, 10, 50, 10, all day, starting at 5 in the morning going to night at night. So by the day's end, you were sitting when you were eating as well. You would have ended up sitting in the posture for about 17 hours. <laughs> so um, at towards the end of one of these, toward the 9 o'clock hour, I'm sitting there, and I'm in and out of dreams. And a, a repeat kind of thing that's happened in my some of my dreams has been somebody's holding a clipboard in front of me, and there's strange writing on the clipboard. And I'm trying to read it, right? So this is happening in this dream. They're holding this clipboard for me to read. And then the next instant, I'm still trying to read the clipboard, but it's embedded in the wall of the Zendo. So that dividing line, we think, is a very thin one. And the, the Dalai Lama wrote, uh, didn't write it, but he was part of a near-death experience a group of doctors who... Uh, published a book including his commentaries from the Tibetan perspective. He, they had these a lot of meetings with scientists, and then they would record, and then they would publish a book. And this one is called Sleeping, Dreaming, and Dying. Sleeping, Dreaming, and Dying. And the Dalai Lama points out the parallels between those three processes. So we look at uh, uh, the Buddhist proposition of waking up spiritually as being pretty simple in concept, again, difficult in execution. The idea is we were all asleep last night, to whatever degree. We all woke up this morning, right? And we know the difference. But the Buddhist idea is we're still asleep. And we can wake up, and we will know the difference. (laughs) It's just that simple in concept, right? So the idea is this is actually a sleep state that we're in. And they're on a spectrum, you know. They're not simple. Sleep is one thing, wake is the other. It's all on a spectrum of consciousness. So very legitimate area to put your attention and uh, while you're meditating. Most people in Japan, that first year that I went there, we sat with a Renzai group, and the head guy was a psychiatrist. He wasn't there, but his senior student was there. They were all senior people, lay people like us. The guy who took us there owned a hardware store, for instance. And this guy had just passed 130 koans in studying with his his master. 
one of the things he said was, you will overcome the pain in your legs, but you will not overcome sleep. So sleep is recognized as a second barrier. But if you take a gentle approach to it and include the process of losing consciousness and going into dreams, then we think it becomes part of the cohesive study. And there are a lot of compliments in the Zen comments about this. Uh, Bankai was a famous Zen teacher who said, the enlightened do not dream. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have the same experience you have that you call a dream. <laughs> and Dogen said, preaching a dream within a dream. Well, that, you know, that is scary for me because all of my hypnopompic episodes, I'll say now, um, are very, uh, they're all very scary things. I had them when I've met it before, and it's yeah. very real and scary. Mine I mean, are all over the map. I had, I had, I had dreams like that that were like a, the worst horror movie you ever went and saw, you know. And uh, uh, J.O. Kenneth Roshi was a British woman who was abbess at uh, Shasta Abbey, and she described her experience in meditation as being like that. Uh, Buddha's night of his awakening, the story is he was assailed by the hordes of Mara. Mara is the principle of evil or confusion or whatever you want to think. Uh, it's not exactly a Satan figure. You can look up Mara, M-A-R-A. And uh, they were temptresses. The daughters of Mara were seductive. Uh, there were demons. There were dragons. There were monsters. And uh, he sat through it all. Uh, these, my teacher used to say, anything that occurs to you in, in your meditation is a product of your own mind. So you should not give it too much importance, but you should not ignore it either. So uh, Shasta Abbey, Gio Kennett said, when that occurred to her, when she had that kind of experience, she, I can't remember if she used the word ordered or commanded or something, told them all to return to their Buddha nature. So People see uh, schizophrenics, see faces in the wall, and, you know, that's common in Zen. There's an expression called the dragon. Do not be, do not be um, fooled or something by the appearance of a real dragon. So the dragon is, um, you know, we're trained to see faces. We're genetically coded to see faces. So if you look at any two spots on the wall and visualize them as eyes, you'll start seeing a face in which are the eyes. And then there might be another bump over here that turns into the eye, and then it's a bigger face. And so that's, that's part of the brain. We think that's the way the brain is constructed. Also, my first hallucination that was a, a tree outside my window turned into a big dragon. Yeah. I once, uh, under, under the influence of drugs, turned into a, a lizard myself. I could see every, I could see every scale on my body, <laughs> like every cell was a scale. <laughs> but you know, been there, done that. Everybody in the history of Zen writes about these things, and so, and they say there's nothing to fear. You have to trust in mind, mind with a capital M, the original mind. So, Sensei, you're saying when that would happen you speak to the illusion or you speak to the dream and say, and tell it to return to its Buddha nature. Is that what, that's what she said? She said, yeah, uh, I, 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 
I have conversations with figures in my dreams, but uh, you speak to that and tell it, Hey, you're an illusion or you're not real. Or what do you do? What do you do with that? How do you handle it? I listen to what they have to say. Yeah. And I'm often asking for advice. Some are very positive and some are just weird. Can't get there from here. Dreams, you know, frustration dreams where you got to meet somebody, but you don't know where they are and you're trying to find out and all that kind of stuff. I I, I think that they're, the one theory of dreams uh, is that the brain is making order out of random noise on the nervous system. Uh, just as people sitting start hearing, Mary had a little lamb go through their head, right? And they wonder, I can't get this out of my head. What's wrong with me? What's happening there, I think, is if you listen very deeply, and some, some sects, uh, uh, emphasize deep listening. So others emphasize breathing. They say, when you fell asleep last night, were you inhaling or were you exhaling? When you woke up this morning, the moment you woke up, were you inhaling or were you exhaling? So in sound, deep listening, people start hearing, can't get it out of your head and drives you crazy. Or some other tune. So I think what's going on there is if you listen deeply, what you start to hear is all kinds of sounds. It's as if your brain and your whole system is filled with sound-emitting diodes. And some people worry about tinnitus or tinnitus or whatever it's called, hearing ringing. In the, but if you listen, you will hear, and it'll wave around. And if, it's really there. There's a real source of that sound. Mm-hmm. it's really there. So what you're actually hearing is this huge dissonant chord at all times. It's just you don't need to hear it constantly, so the brain shuts it down. You don't have to hear that. You don't have to hear your heartbeat unless you're having a heart attack. You don't have to hear your breath unless you're suffocating. Right? You don't have to know. So the brain seems to operate on a need-to-know basis. And you don't need to know this. I'm not going to bother you with it kind of thing. So I think what happens is when the brain hears these sounds, it selectively picks this one out, this pitch, and this pitch, and this pitch, and it strings them together in a familiar way that you recognize. So it brings order out of chaos. That, that seems to be the function of the way the brain works. And so when people come to me with that problem, they say, I'm going crazy, can't get this tune out of my head. Just say, just listen to one note. Focus in on that one note. And when you start hearing it, you'll start hearing the others as well, like harmonics on the gong. Right? They're all, all there simultaneously. Hmm. So that's what we mean by the doors of perception, Aldous Huxley's expression, or given emptiness, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. It means, yes, they're real, but we're only getting half the story. Here's the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Any, anything else with that, Tina, that you want to ask? Okay. Kate, you have anything? Come on, Kate. You have anything, sweetie? I don't know. I'm not. I'm very new with this Zen stuff. You're better off. (laughs) (laughs) I have one more question. That's that's what they mean by beginner's mind. Yes. Beginner's mind is the same as the most advanced practitioner. (laughs) I have one more question for you, Sensei. And this is one that uh, Craig hasn't asked. He was telling me he was going to ask you, but he's being a little shy. <laughs> so you're spoiling it. Okay, okay, so 
Um, I was told not to read the the, the, the three pillars of Zen. So I went re- not to read it. I was, I was yeah. Big, that's how Buddy gets me to do things. He t- tells me not to do it. <laughs> so I was I was listening, and the um, the the people that were attending the 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 seminars or, or the meditation retreats were, were asked questions as to why they were there and what they expected to get out of it, and based on the answers, they were given different meditations to do. And one of the particular meditations was to sit and say, Mu. What is the meaning of Mu? Oh, well, uh, Kaplow's teacher was uh, Rinzai. And so Rinzai used um, the koan. The koan is an illogical riddle. Again, Hakuin. Hakuin invented one called, you know, the sound of two hands clapping. What is the sound of one hand? Now, this is often misquoted to say, what is the sound of one hand clapping? That wasn't the koan. The koan is, we know this. This is familiar, right? We know that sound. What is this sound? And then if you, if you can come up with an answer that satisfies the teacher, it said that his response may be, how big is that sound? So these koans are meant to intrigue, but also frustrate the intellect. So that you have to come to the end of reasoning. You can't, you can't figure this out logically. You certainly can't answer it logically. And your teacher is not going to let you get away with a clever answer. So you're in a bind. You put yourself in a catch-22. You've got to do something that's impossible to do. So the, the question of Mu is one of the classic ones, and it's often expressed as Joshu uh, was asked, does a dog have Buddha nature. And uh, that, that morning or that same day when some, the monk asked that, he said yes. Later on, when another monk asked the identical question, he said mu, which colloquial simply means no. But it means more than no. It means absolute no. It means no existence. It means the dog, the question, you, the questioner, me, Right, nothing exists in the way we think it does. So it's like this mu is like this tsunami that just sweeps everything in its path. So mu mu basically means emptiness, or it means uh, um, the true nature of things, which is uh, impermanent, imperfect, insubstantial. This computer sitting in front of me is very tangible. It's real. But in another sense, it's impermanent. It's changing. It's actually going to bring particle decay as we're sitting here. It's, uh, it's decaying. Um, it, wasn't, it didn't used to be what it is now. It wasn't in this form. But nothing that is in this computer has ever not been in the universe. It's always been here in one form or another. So it's reconfigured. So Zen looks at the universe as kind of the biggest uh, uh, remix you know, possible. Everything is being remixed continuously. So in a sense, nothing exists as it seems, 100%, but nothing is ever added or taken away either, which they they agree with physics. Uh, There's no real, Zen finds no conflict with science. Um, So the principles can be argued and defended, but the difference between Zen and science is Buddha's experience 
of being the observer was the whole point. There was no point in trying to define or describe a universe absent the observer. And so for us, the whole, the whole important point is that you are the observer. Matsuoka Roshi used to say in Zen, who is Buddha? You are Buddha. In Zen, who is God? You are God. He never claimed he was God. <laughs> so uh, Buddhism is very different from religion that way. Uh, and it's very different from science that way. And that from the beginning, the observer was part of the equation and the whole meaning of the equation. Does that make sense? So if you penetrate Mu yourself, and that, that's, we, they speak of penetrating these cons rather than solving them like you just, you say you turn it like a kernel of corn in your hand until you've worn through the outer layer and then you've worn through the next layer and the next layer until finally you penetrate all the way down to the, the core. And like an onion, it's empty, right? There's nothing at the core, so to speak. But a lot of tears along the way. Well, thank you so much, Sensei, for being with us today and, and for staying with us, too, because, I mean, we went much over what we normally do. Thank you so much. Oh, well, I thought, I thought so it was grateful. important. Very grateful that you came on. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're grateful for you, and we're grateful for your support. So uh, this is what I do. This is, I'm an artist, and I do some design as well, but uh, most of my time is spent Enlightening people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm amazed at how accessible he is too. Sensei is so accessible, and uh, yeah. I want to thank you for that because uh, you've met with me a couple of times, and not yeah. know me from Adam's house cat. You know. <laughs> well, I I find everybody familiar, yeah. and and that I promise. invite any of you who want to have an individual monologue with me to just follow up, and Buddy will give you the contact information. Thank you. So. Well, guys, I want to thank y'all for being here today, and we'll call it there, and y'all have a great week. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks, Sensei. Kasho. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery. 